Well, let's open our Bibles together to Esther chapter 7. And we're going to be reaching, in one many ways, the climax of the story. In other ways, there's still a lot to be resolved, as we'll see as we get to the end of the text. But this is one of the climactic moments of the story. And as you turn there, I need to do a little bit of summarizing, because this is one of those stories where, you know, it's kind of like a great television show. that you know, starts off saying, you know, previously on 24, you know, whatever it is, and they recap it. We've got to do that a little bit. Now, there have been two big themes that we've talked about in the story of Esther. The first theme is the idea of... What does it look like to co-labor with God? In other words, um, if, something, if I desire to, if I have a dream, or if there's something that I feel like God might be calling me to do, what am I supposed to do and what does God do? Like, what's the balance? And, and another way to think about this is, what does it look like for God to do his part and me to do my part, and how do we kind of work together in that way? So that's been a theme that we've teased out, and we've developed this little line that I hope is helpful. It's just the idea of do everything that you can do, And then trust God for the things that only he can do. And there's an awful lot that only God can do. So this idea of veiled providence, visible faith, kind of captures that tension. Our work, God's work, and we see this played out in the story of Esther for sure. The second thing we've been talking about is how God's work, we also use the word providence when we're talking about God's work, and usually providence sort of has the idea of behind-the-scenes work, which I would say is most of the work that God is doing today is this, his, he's moving in ways that are just as real as they were in the Old and New Testament, but they're often invisible, just like God is sort of invisible in the book of Esther. Right? His name is not directly mentioned, yet he's all over the story behind the scenes. And we've talked about how God's providence always has a trajectory. It has you know, a termination. It's going toward a purpose. And the purpose of God working is the purpose of redemption. And there's a couple different angles to talk about redemption. There's the macro redemption, which is the whole story of the Bible, right? That God sent his son to save sinners. And one day the whole creation will be made new through Jesus Christ. Then there's the micro stories of redemption, what I like to call them, which is little bitty stories of redemption that's happening in my life and happening in your life. And God's inviting us into those stories. We can actually be a part of redemption in the lives of other people. And that's true is sharing the gospel, but it's also true in healing relationships and being a minister of grace that we've been given through Jesus Christ. So that's a second big theme is this idea of redemption. Now we're going to see this morning those themes come back together, but the real focus of our text this morning is on the enemy of the story, a man named Haman. And we're going to see Haman's end. We're going to see the final day in Haman's life. And so the story has been sort of progressing to this point. In fact, the pace of the narrative has quickened as the story has unfolded. Um, I I did a little research and kind of, I'll play it out for you this way. Chapters 1 through 3 of Esther cover about 12 years of history. Chapter 4 covers approximately one week, as best as we can tell. But chapters 5, 6, and 7 all cover only 24 hours. One day. It's kind of a half of one day and then all night and then uh, the next half of the next day. So in these 24 hours, there's a lot that happens. And so this is where I need to do a little bit of catch-up work. Remember that Esther has decided to go before her husband, the king, and plead for the lives of her people who are under judgment of the law that the wicked Haman has convinced the king to pass. So all the Jewish lives are at stake. She goes before the king. She's pardoned for interrupting him, which was like the first grace of God in that sense. And then she says, here's what I request king that you come to a banquet and then at the banquet instead of telling him what the real request is save the jews she says my request is that you come to another banquet tomorrow now in the middle between banquet one and banquet two a lot happens 
Haman goes home, and as he goes home, he sees Mordecai like he normally does, and Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman like Mordecai normally does, and this makes Haman furious like it normally does, and he goes home and he complains to his wife, you know, woe is me, I've got all these things except this one, Mordecai doesn't recognize how great I am, what's wrong with him? And the wife says, you need to build a gallows which we talked about was actually a pole to impale him on. And make it high, 50 cubits, which is 75 feet, so that everyone will know you don't mess with Haman. So Haman thinks this is a great idea. And the next morning, he goes to the king to plead for the life of Mordecai, that he can kill Mordecai and put him on this pole. Meanwhile, that night, same night, king can't sleep. In his insomnia, he asks a servant to read the record of the kingdom, the chronicles of the kingdom. And it just so happens that the page that the servant turns to is this record five years earlier when Mordecai saved the king's life and he was never honored for it. He was never recognized for that service. And so the king says, we've got to remedy this. Who's in the court? I need some help honoring Mordecai. Guess who's in the court? Haman's in the court to convince the king to kill Mordecai. But who wins out? Always the king, right? So the king says, Haman, you need to honor Mordecai because he saved my life. So all that day, this is Haman's final day of life. He just doesn't know it yet. All that day, Haman is honoring Mordecai instead of killing Mordecai. He's on the king's horse. He's wearing the king's robe, Mordecai is. And Haman is shouting out, this is what is done when someone, you know, honors the king. He gets honored in return. And then Haman goes home, covered his head, grieving, weeping, gnashing his teeth. Woe is me. And he gets ushered off to the second banquet. And that's where we pick up the text. Now, everything's going to really come to a head at this second banquet. And it's going to be fascinating to see how Esther approaches this. So let's dive right in. Verse 1, chapter 7. Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even a half of the kingdom, it shall be done. This is the third time Esther's heard that phrase. Whatever it is you want, up to half of the kingdom you can have. And as we talked about before, that doesn't necessarily literally mean half the kingdom, but it is a good sign that she's in the good graces of the king. The king is dying to know what she wants, right? It's got to be something big. It's got to be, you know, diamond earrings, or it's got to be, you know, take, take me away on a vacation to Paris or something. Something is coming, right? Now, Esther has a delicate task ahead of her. It's a twofold dilemma she's entering into. Number one, she knows she's got to come between the king and his best friend. All right now, you know, ladies, that's, a, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. She's got to come between uh, um, Hazuerus, the king, and Haman, his like, second in command. Right? This is his trusted advisor. In other words, she knows by the time this night is over, the king's going to have to choose. Does he want his wife or does he want his servant, Mordec- uh, Haman? Because he can't have both. Right? That's the first part of her dilemma. But the second part of her dilemma is she's got to expose Haman's evil intentions without also implicating the king. Because remember, the king was the one that signed the law that all the Jews were going to be killed. Right? So she needs to figure out a way to do this, to come between the king and his best friend, expose Haman, not implicate the king. That's a tough job. She handles it brilliantly. Uh, We're going to see in a minute how she handles it, but I'll say this. This is a great example of doing everything that you can do and then trusting God to do what only he can do. Because at the end of the day, as clever as Esther is, as bold as Esther is, and she's both, 
Only God can turn the heart of a king. King's going to have to choose. Haman, Esther. God's going to control whom he chooses. Listen to Proverbs 21.1 again. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Esther is counting on God to turn the king's heart toward her. So this is what she says, verse 3. And Queen Esther replied, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition, and my people as my request. Imagine the shock. The king's like, all right, lay it on me. I'm ready to pull out the checkbook. You know, we'll pay for the diamond earrings, whatever. No, my petition is my life. My request is the lives of the people that are my people. What in the world is she talking about? Men, just imagine if your anniversary is coming and you go to your wife and you say, is there anything special you want for your anniversary present this year? And she says, yes, save me. I want my life. I'm going to die if you don't intervene. What are you talking about? Of course I'll save you. I'm your husband, right? So, you know, pulling on the the heartstrings there. Esther's like, save me. My petition, my only request. I don't need anything material, but save my life and the life of the people. Here's the other thing she does that's so smart. She uses the same formula the king had used in verse 2 when he asked her what she wanted. So look back at verse 2 for a minute. The king says, what is your petition? What is your request? When she answers... She uses the same formula. My petition is my life. My request is the life of my people. So what she's essentially doing is my petition, my request, one and the same. I'm joining my fate to the fate of my people. Here she is living out the admonishment of Mordecai a couple chapters earlier. Remember who you are. You are a Jew. Your fate, your destiny lies with the Jewish people. And for the first time, Esther is fully living out her true identity. And it is something to behold. Let's continue in verse 4. For we have been sold, Esther is saying, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Then King Ahasuerus asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would presume to do thus? The king hasn't connected the dots yet. Isn't this interesting? He's still in a fog. Now this tells us a couple things. One of the things it tells us is he wasn't thinking that much about the fate of the Jews. Like he's probably like several weeks ago, he passed the law, ancient history in his mind. Whatever happens, happens, right? He's kind of moved on from that. But the second thing it tells you is he has not connected the dots that Esther's Jewish. Yeah, that's going to happen in a minute. He's going to figure it all out. But what I love about what Esther has done is, even before she revealed the guilty party, she already has the king's anger against this person that would threaten the, the life of his wife. That's what all this setup has been. She needs the king to understand that her life is at stake and she needs him to feel some emotion around that. That's why the banquet, that's why the second banquet, that's why the royal robes she's wearing, that's why all this big buildup. I kind of think the king's sleepless night had something to do with the fact that, that the, the queen, boy, she looked good tonight, you know. I, I haven't seen that queen in, in 30 days. What, what's wrong with me? Why haven't I been calling on her? I, I, in, my, in my imagination, Michael would say, my sanctified imagination, right? That's what I imagined that sleepless night was partly about. So he's just waiting. What can I do for you, queen? And this is what comes out of her mouth and he's mad who would dare to threaten you my wife verse 6 is the big reveal Esther said a foe and an enemy is this wicked 
Haman. Now he's sitting right there at the banquet, right? I imagine she's pointing her finger right there in his face. And Haman became terrified before the king and queen. I bet he did, right? Not only does Esther identify the guilty party, but at the same time, she's placing him in his proper context, which is an enemy, a foe. In other words, a traitor of the king. Now everything is clear to the king. He realizes for the first time, oh, now I know what you're talking about because he knows Haman's an enemy of the Jews. Therefore, Esther must be a Jew. He never knew it. She kept her identity secret from him for all these years. Now everything is clear. Here's what this meant. Haman was aligned as a sworn enemy against the people of the queen. That made Haman also an enemy of the king. It also meant, in the king's mind, Haman tricked me. And I think the king may have assumed that Haman knew the queen's identity. Now, we don't think he did, but it's possible he did. All the servants did. You know, you'll, you'll see that in just a minute. So the king's probably assuming here, all this has been going behind my back. There's an enemy in my midst. There's a traitor in my midst. But he also has a big dilemma. And so let's see how the king handles it. Verse 7, The king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. The king steps out to gather his thoughts, right? He's probably in shock. My wife's been Jewish. Who knew, right? He's also in this dilemma. Can he punish Haman for a law that he, the king, also signed off on? Furthermore, if he does, wouldn't he be admitting his own part of the whole fiasco? And then finally, he's already passed the law. And he knows Persian law cannot be undone. Not even by him. It's irrevocable. There's going to have to be some other way out of this dilemma. So the king is in a little bit of a pickle, we might say, but he's about to get out of it. And again, this is part of God's providence. What happens next? God is allowing things to happen the way that God designed, allowed, planned for them to happen. Verse 8. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, I've got to explain that last phrase because it's a little bit of a mystery. We're not entirely sure what it means. That's the literal translation right there. They probably refers to the servants. So as the king spoke those words of condemnation, the servants covered Haman's face. Why would they cover Haman's face? Probably some kind of cultural symbol that this man's under the judgment of the king. And it may be a little bit like the, uh, the, the Persian equivalent of handcuffing him, right? Dead man walking. He is getting the wrath of the king and the servants are recognizing it. They're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, here's what's interesting. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is forced to beg for his life from a Jew. Isn't that poetic justice? And as he's begging for his life from a Jew, the king comes in and misinterprets his intentions as assaulting his wife. And therefore, Haman will ultimately get killed for a crime that he didn't commit, just like he wanted to kill the Jews for something they didn't commit, you see. Such amazing justice. Now, here's what's interesting about Persian law. If there's a member of the king's harem, so a wife or a concubine or anyone else that belongs to the king, so to speak, no other man can come between or uh, within seven feet or seven steps, rather, of that woman. That's Persian law, right? Haman would have known that. He's so desperate 
to save his own life, to save his skin, that he falls on the couch, probably at her feet, begging for life. The king comes in, and he's thinking, regardless of his intentions, he's not to be anywhere near my wife. What is going on here? And he makes a snap judgment. Let's be done with this man. Verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows, standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Interesting that the servant knows more than the king. See, what was likely going on is the servants were privy to this feud between Haman and Mordecai, and it's pretty clear whose side they were on. It was not Haman's. I doubt anybody was on Haman's side other than the king who was somewhat blinded. So the king makes a decision. Haman's got to die. Praise God, he makes that decision because it's either Haman's life or Esther's life at stake. The dramatic reversal of fortune for Haman, which had begun that morning, was now complete. This is perhaps the most ironic and some might say maybe the most fitting death in Scripture. Haman is hung on the very gallows that he constructed for Mordecai the Jew. The king's anger subsided is a bit of a footnote that indicates that, okay, the king is now on the right side, right? Like he was angry at Haman. Haman's dead. Now you can relax a little bit. So the king is now aligned with Esther. King's aligned with Mordecai. The king's aligned with the Jews. But there's that problem of the law. And no matter how much the king might want to take the words out of his mouth, he's already spoken that law. He's already written and sealed that law. It cannot be undone. It's going to happen unless something else were to come into play. And that's where we'll go to next week. Stay tuned. Now, I want to use the time that's left to talk about how this man Haman applies to our lives because I, I really wanted to go in a different direction on this sermon, right? I thought about three different lessons we could do. And I thought I'll do three different lessons. Only one of them will be on Haman because I, be, I wanted to be the positive, right? It's Father's Day, right? But no, the title of the sermon is Haman on his gallows. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. So this is where we're going to go. We're going to talk about Haman. I think this is the trajectory of the text that I want to stay true to that and I need to talk to you about something that is in you and something that is in me that was also in Haman. And it's the issue of pride. Haman's pride was his undoing. And I want to talk about pride. This is the application for us from this passage. Now, here's what I know is happening. A bunch of you right now in your mind, maybe most of you, are thinking, oh good, I'm off the hook today. Because <laughs> I don't struggle with pride that much. Maybe a little, not that much. I'm glad you feel that way because you're going to prove the main lesson of Haman's life. Here's the main lesson of Haman's life. Here it is. We are all blind to our own pride. And that's a big problem. All of us have pride. And we're blind to it. Uh, for those of you that have driver's license, licenses, do you remember when you were learning to drive, uh, they talked to you about blind spots? They make a really big deal about blind spots. Every car has a blind spot, right? Some more than others. Why are blind spots dangerous? Because what you can't see can kill you. Pride is in our blind spot. We all have it. It's there. Maybe some bigger than others. But if you go down that path, you're actually not dealing with your pride objectively. 
you've got to acknowledge, I am probably blind. No, not probably. I am blind to my own pride because almost by definition, pride is something that tends to be invisible to the person that is holding it, that is carrying it. Haman's pride defined his life. It was the defining characteristic. If there was a poster of pride, Haman's picture would be on the poster, right? Literally. If I were to go back in time, if you were to go back in time and interview Haman before his fall, do you think he'd have any clue about his own pride? He was the only one that couldn't see it. I imagine myself going back to interview Haman and I'd ask him three questions. Number one, you know, I'd start kind of positive. Haman, how do you think others perceive you? What are some words they might use? Here's what Haman, I believe, would say. Wealthy, powerful, smart, clever, in command, all these things. Second question. I'm going to dig a little deeper with you, Haman. Do you think you have any blind spots? Is there anything holding you back? I think Haman would say this. The only thing holding me back are those people who are not giving me what I rightfully deserve. All right, third question. Let me dig a little deeper than that. How about pride, Haman? Do you struggle with pride? I imagine Haman's response. You want to talk to somebody about pride? There's this man, Mordecai. And every time I walk by, even though I'm higher ranking than him, he refuses to bow down because he's prideful. Go talk to him about pride. Haman's pride literally destroyed his life. If God hadn't intervened, Haman's pride would have cost the lives of millions of people. But he's the only one that can't see it, you see. Pride is in our blind spots. Now here's the danger of Haman for us, is that we would read this story and not believe we're anything like Haman. Because here's where you tend to go, and here's where I tend to go. Haman is an egomaniac. I'm a normal person. Right? That's, that's sort of true. Right? Maybe some level it is true. But you're not going deep enough. You're not going far enough. You're not asking God to reveal to you, how am I like this person? What do you have to teach me, Spirit, through this text, even about an enemy of the Jewish people? There's something there for us. There's something there for me. I think the valuable lesson from Haman's life is we all have more pride than we think. We all do. Every one of you. So let's define pride, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. Pride is ego, right? It's sort of an over-attention to self. By the way, it doesn't mean you should never pay attention to yourself. That's not right. That's not healthy. That's not balanced. But this is an over-attention to yourself. Pride is thinking you deserve more than what you have, maybe. Pride is maybe believing that you are a little bit better than other people in some area, in any area. That's pride. And you don't think you're as prideful as you are. You don't. And I don't. And the reason we don't is because we're all blinded to our own pride to some degree. Now, I want to do something for you this morning. (laughs) You might not like this, but I want to love you enough to tell you, you have a pride problem. And so do I. And I'm going to hit this as hard as I can hit this. And honestly, I think this is the lesson for us through the text this morning. This is Haman on his gallows. How did he get there? His pride. One last thing. Some of you are still thinking. Preach it, Rob. There's somebody sitting next to me that needs to hear this message. (laughs) I know you're thinking that. You're you're thinking, maybe I have a little bit of pride, but it's not that big a problem. Now, here's what I would say. You just revealed your pride by that own thought. Because what you're saying is, I'm not as prideful as them. I know prideful people. I know a prideful person. And I am not like them. You see that phrase, I am not like them, is the very definition of self-righteous pride. I am above, you see. 
You can't say you don't have pride. There is no I don't have a pride problem. There is only God help me with my pride problem because you probably can't see it. I think that is true. Now, one other group of you that I need to address really quickly so we can make some progress, I think. Some of you in the room are thinking, well, that may be true for a lot of people and I'm kind of trying to get there, but I can't have a pride problem because I have the opposite problem. I have really low self-esteem. I don't think I measure up to other people. I don't think I have what it takes. And that's my struggle. Here's what I would say about your low self-esteem. What's actually happening in your low self-esteem is you're comparing yourself to other people and you find your own self lacking. You believe that you're not worthy. That's also rooted in self. It's also rooted in pride, right? It's wounded pride. So in other words, if you think about it, pride can be, look at me, I'm great, or it can be, woe is me, I'm small. Both are rooted in pride. There is no, I don't have a pride problem. Only God help me with my pride problem. Once we acknowledge that, right, then we're able to make some progress. Now, in our culture, we miss use the word pride all the time. It's come to mean something that it doesn't mean, right? Princess, uh, uh, princess bride, right? I do not think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> so here's what we say. We think, say things like this. I take pride in my work or I'm proud of my country or you know, a certain group, you know, they identify with, with, with pride. Like they're actually using the word differently than the Bible uses the word, right? Good for you, take pride in your work. You know, be proud of your country. You know, to a degree, those things are fine. Those things can even be healthy. But pride in scripture is always, always, wrong. It's always twisted. It's always dark, right? And and our culture has wanted us to take this dark word, right? You know, it's kind of like the way our culture started using the word naughty. Like, since when did naughty mean kind of like cool and edgy and like you want to be naughty? No, naughty is sinful. Naughty is wrong. You see, same thing with pride. They've taken something that God has defined as evil and they've kind of made it something that's not quite as evil, maybe even as laudable, see. I want to go back to the way that the scripture talks about pride. You ever noticed how God feels about pride? It's not commendable. That's an understatement. Uh, I came across something this week that Chip Ingram wrote. You know, Chip is a pastor in California. He's written a lot of books. He has a radio show, this kind of thing. And I love what he said about pride. He writes this. In scripture, there is one thing 100% of the time that God is 100% against. (laughs) When he sees it in a man, when he sees it in a woman, when he sees it in a child, when it happens in the Old Testament, when it happens in the New Testament, when he sees it in a corporation, when he sees it in a nation, it's not like he's unhappy about it. It's not like he's mildly depressed or displeased, or displeased rather. He's against it. He comes against it. He brings consequences. He hates it. That one thing is pride. Now think biblically about pride for a minute. Why is it such a big deal to God? Because it's the fundamental sin. Pride is what enticed Lucifer, also known as Satan, to rebel against God. Pride is what enticed the human race to rebel against God. Remember in the garden, you know? Like, go your own way. You can be like God, you see. Pride. Pride, if you really think about it, and I hope this hits you like it hit me this week, conviction, pride is the self-sufficient posture that says, I don't really need God all that much. I know better than him about my life sometimes. I don't need to fully submit to him because I'm smart enough, talented enough, educated enough, wealthy enough, insulated enough to make life work on my own. That's an attitude of pride. And it's toxic. It's deadly. Why? 
because we're created beings. It's insanity for a created being to say to the creator, I know more than you about me. You see, the only appropriate posture a creature can have toward his creator is, I am dependent upon you for every breath. I submit to you. As my creator, you have full authority to design me, instruct me, correct me, command me, raise me up, lower me down. I serve at the pleasure of my creator. Anything else is an insanity called pride. And unfortunately, it's an inseparable part of the fallen human condition, which means it's in you and it's in me. And because it is deeply sinful, pride always brings damage, destruction, and death. And this is where I want to go back to Haman. Let's take one final look at Haman hanging on his gallows. This man, Haman, gave his life to pursuing his own self. His desire was to be lifted up, to be noticed, to look down on everyone else, for all the people to look up at him. Do you see how in the end he got exactly what he wanted? High up on a pole, 75 feet above all those little people below. In my imagination, I picture a sign at the bottom of Haman's gallows. And the sign would essentially be Haman's epitaph. And if I was going to write Haman's epitaph, I would paraphrase Haman's own words from Esther 5.11 when he brags about his own accomplishments. This is what I would write on Haman's epitaph. Here hangs Haman who loved to talk about the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king, and yet he was not satisfied. So the king lifted him up one more time, high above everyone else, and here he hangs, a grotesque embodiment of his own deepest ambition, which was always to be the object of everyone's attention. So look up, And see the great Haman, and in so doing, you complete his heart's desire. Pride terminates in death, period, always. It may not be your physical death, but pride hollows you out inside. Wherever there is a specific area of pride in your life, that space becomes empty. It becomes hollow. You can't fit anything else in it. It's filled with you and it's dead, you see. So any area of your life where you would think you don't need God is a barren area where you can't receive the fullness of life that God desires to give you. So an area of life, like uh, maybe it's a struggle with sin or it's a relationship or it's something that you feel like you're too good for or you just, God, I got this part, you know? You can have other areas of my life, but, but, but it hands off this part of your life. Do you realize that part of your life is dead? Like there's no life, there's no breath in it. It's barren. God can't do what he wants to do in that part of your life because it's dead. Pride leads to death. And any area where you may subtly look down on others because they're not as with it as you or spiritual as you or well-educated or wealthy or they've got different tastes than you, maybe because they're not as humble as you, any area where you subtly look down at other people is also dead because in that space in your life, 
you have emptied yourself of the capacity for other people and there is only you. You cannot love. You cannot have life in that space in your heart. Redemption, which is the theme of Esther. Redemption can only happen in spaces where there is an acknowledgement of a need. God, help me. God, redeem me. I need you to put me back together. Pride blocks you from crying out to God for help. So what do we do? What do we do about our pride, even in our blind spots that we can't see? We ask God to open our eyes. We ask God to remove the blinders. Show us the pride that I'm not even visible. It's not even visible to me. And as he opens our eyes, then we can start to repent. We can start to repent. And I would encourage you, as you think this through, I want to give you some questions, some, some sort of handles that you can think about as you think about what areas you might have some pride and to prayerfully ask yourself these questions and that God would open your eyes and reveal some things to you. Here's some questions to consider. What things do you think you're too good for? Where do you think you deserve more than what you have? For many of us, we need to ask, where do we think we actually deserve what we do have? Where do you find judgment cropping up in your speech and your attitudes? In what places of life do you believe deep down that you don't need God to rescue? You're okay there. Where do you believe that your goodness or abilities or efforts are enough without Him? And then, as He graciously opens your eyes to your blind spots, then you can repent. And to repent means to turn. To turn from one thing and turn to something else. And when it comes to pride, turning, repenting means turning from you and turning toward him. And as you repent, repentance will always take you to the cross. And it will always take you to good news. <laughs> because here's the good news of the cross. The good news of the cross is that you don't have to eliminate all the pride in your life because you never will. You don't have to do that to be acceptable with God because there was one and only one who had no pride. There was one and only one who had complete humility. And that one, according to Philippians chapter 2, left heaven, left everything that he rightfully deserved and took on the form of a servant, a human being, so that he could go down, so that he could die, you see. And because of that death, because of that one who had all the humility that you're supposed to have and don't, who had none of the pride that you do, he paid that death for you. He went to the gallows. He hung up high as the sacrifice so that you don't have to be Haman. You don't have to hang up there, even though your pride should rightfully land you the same place that Haman's pride did. You see, Jesus did that on your behalf. That's the good news. That's where repentance will take you. It'll take you immediately to forgiveness. But you have to ask God to open your eyes and help you in your pride. The cross will remind you that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. And then right after that, it'll remind you that he loves you so much that he did die for you. And so that's how I want us to close our services. I want us to reflect on that. We're going to do that through a song. The song is literally an opportunity to repent because this song's not about us. The song's about him. The song's about Jesus. Only Jesus. 
And this song, if you're willing to actually enter into it and sing the words with integrity, will literally take your focus off of you, off of your stuff, off of your problems, off of your pride. And it'll put it on something else, something holy, something worthy. So for some of you, you need to use this song to repent. Like, I hope that you'll literally think of it that way. Others of you, you may need to use this song to celebrate the forgiveness that you have because you've been repenting as I've been preaching. And you need to go to the cross and say, man, I am prideful, but praise God, he paid for my pride. Praise God, Jesus wasn't prideful, so I don't have to be completely. I could never be completely, but I want to grow. And that's the work of the Spirit that he's going to do in you as you repent and as you worship. So let's do that as a body. Father, thank you for loving us enough to send your son and thank you that that son was without pride because we could never get to you on our own. And Father, for the men and women here that are feeling a tug on their spirit of conviction, and I pray that that is all or most of us. God, I pray that we would recognize that's from you. That's the weight of your scripture on us. We are under the condemnation of the law as creatures who have loved ourselves more than our creator. And yet, Father, for all of us who have put our faith in Christ, we are not under condemnation any longer. The weight of the law has been borne through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now we can stand before you with clear eyes, with hands, with palms that are open, and we can say thank you. So I pray as we sing that our hearts and our attention would be directed toward you. In the name of Jesus, amen.